If you've been for the last few weeks, you'll know that uh, you'll know that we've been doing a little series on the second and third chapters of the book of Acts. So I want to review this, and if you've got your Bible with you, I'd always encourage people to have their own Bible and to look at it. We'll just look briefly at what we've done. Now, sometimes when I've come, I've mentioned this before, but you did realise there was going to be an examination this morning on what we've done previously. That uh, That's all right? Chin? Good. We're in business. Right. In chapter 2 and verse 11, the Spirit of God had come and Peter is speaking and you'll notice these words. He gives a description of various nationalities, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Now this is the point. He says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And we ask the question, what are the mighty works of God? And they are so numerous, but essentially the sending of Messiah, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father. This sums up the mighty works of God as far as the Gospel is concerned. There are much more, but that can be a summing up of them. And then notice in verse 23, his sermon continues about Jesus and he says, This Jesus delivered up or handed over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And the question was, well, who killed Jesus? And if we come with an answer like all of the Sanhedrin, yes, uh, other members of the Jewish nation, yes, uh, the Romans, yes, you and me, yes, we're involved in it, But essentially the one who handed Jesus over to death was God the Father. It was not an accident. You'll notice the words there according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't something that God the Father thought up at the last minute in a desperate situation. The Son was sent and one of the best known verses in the Bible declares that, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He gave up the Son to deal with all of our sin. And then verses 31 and 32 we looked at last week. The sermon continues, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And this is leading on to the finality, the story that we've got to complete this morning in in one sense complete but he was raised up he did not remain in the grave so last Sunday we talked about the healing of the lame beggar a man whose name we don't know we'll find out when we get to heaven and what we looked at in particular was verse 
16. And his name, by faith in his name, that is the name of Jesus, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. What's that getting at? Well, it's getting at what happened. It's getting at the fact that he talks about in verse 6. This man is begging, looking for arms, looking for money. He'd been brought to the temple to beg for some 40 years. That was the limit of his understanding. There was no way that he was going to be healed. Once you read 40, that's it. There's no chance. So I've just missed out. But this man was begging and he saw Peter and John and they said, look at us. And he looked because he was expecting some money. And Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The one thing that he could not do, he did. He didn't call out for a physiotherapist. He didn't say, I better check with the doctor. He didn't say anything else. But he grabbed hold of their hand and they gave him the physical assistance and he stood up and he walked and he didn't stop at walking, did he? He was leaping and jumping and praising God. And I suggested if someone did that in here in the service, we wouldn't, we'd wonder what was going on. But if a man or a woman comes to Christ and is converted and they have new life, then go for it. I won't object if it's real. That's the point. And for this man it was real. Now what all of these things are saying to us, and, and you know that we're leaving out so much of the story, is that the ascension of Jesus... And the declaration of this message by Peter and John and the way it was written down by Luke, the doctor historian. The ascension of Jesus then is the declaration of his active reign and rule over all the nations. He has done all that is required to bring us to the Father. So our section this morning begins... In chapter 3 at verses 11 and 12. And all I'm going to do is refer to a few verses on the way through here. But what am I aiming for? I'm aiming in essence for verse 16. You'll see these words. And his name, in other words the name of Jesus, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Could that happen this morning? Not that someone who is crippled starts to walk and leap around necessarily, but someone here who has no expectation even, who wonders what life is all about, who was confined to their own sense of limitation. Here's the message of Jesus Christ and comes to new life. That is something that God does within us. So this begins Peter's message in this last part of the chapter. 
and he talks about the bringing to them of the blessing promised to Abraham through his sovereign rule at the Father's right hand. These were Jewish people. They knew what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures, and he refers back to that all the time to enable them to see that the fulfilment of the Old Testament is in Messiah who has come. Notice verses 12 and 13. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people because they'd all run together to the portico called Solomon's section. And he said to them, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power we've made this man walk? No, he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over. Now there's the word we looked at the other week, that Jesus was delivered over or given over. It's the same word that is used to describe this. No accident. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. And so this message comes forth, but within it there's another question. Why did this miracle happen at the entrance to the temple? What was specific about that? The temple was the place of worship, it was the area in which people congregated, they would come, and it was three o'clock in the afternoon, the sixth hour, but why was there that spot And why only this man healed out of all the thousands that would have been there? It's John Calvin, the scholar from years ago, the second generation of the Reformation. He says that God's purpose in performing these miracles was to show Christ's glory. God's purpose in showing these miracles was to show Christ's glory not his healing not his ability not his preaching but his glory and it is the glory of Christ that you and I are to focus on in life in every day of life this is, this is the, the reverberating message that comes again and again in the Gospels. Now you've got your Bibles, turn back for a minute to John's Gospel chapter 1. And it's amazing when you look at this just how often the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ is mentioned. In John chapter 1, for example, verse 14, concerning the Word, this is Jesus who came to our planet, John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, he became a human being. And what happened? We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did they see? They saw his glory. They don't set out to describe the glory, but they see the man Jesus Christ We have seen his glory. The great peak of glory was not only the transfiguration, it was the cross. 
because the, the cross of glory is that which changes our lives. He doesn't stop there. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Well, that's true. We can't see God. Then he says, the only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed him because he came to our planet as a human being. But the classic illustration in John's Gospel of the glory of God, I should make this a question, shouldn't I? What's the chapter in John's Gospel that declares more than any other chapter the word glory? Now this is being taped, so you better speak up. There's no prize, by the way, except perhaps eternal life. Chapter 17, what we call the high priestly prayer. This prayer of Jesus declares the glory of God. Now let's have a look at it. In verse 1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour of his death. The hour when he was to be like the brazen serpent in the wilderness that Moses pointed people to. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And here again it points out that only those who have been given to the Son by the Father come to eternal life. There's no guesswork in becoming a Christian. There's no who wants to do this and who wants to do that. They've been given by the Father to the Son. Glorify your Son and then it's returned that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4, Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He glorified the Father by the work that he did, the work of his death and resurrection, which hadn't occurred yet, but this is the way he prays. And then he goes on in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with... This is amazing. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The eternal word who became Jesus has always been the glory in the Father's presence. He didn't begin to get glory. He has always had glory. He's always possessed this glory of which he's praying. Verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. That is all the ones who have come to faith. And then he says, I am glorified in them. What's that mean? If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, if you know that all your sins are forgiven and the Holy Spirit is within your life, you fit into what Jesus is saying here. All mine are yours 
and yours and mine, we belong. We're not lost out there somewhere. We're not hoping that God will find us. We belong. We're never out of his presence. We're as secure here this morning as we are anywhere through the week and irrespective of what we face. All mine are yours and yours are mine. We belong to the Father and the Son and of course the Spirit. And then he says, and I am glorified in them. Jesus Christ is glorified in us. That's staggering. We're like glorious incandescent light bulbs. But it's not a glory that you see with physical eyes. It's the glory of belonging to the one in glory. You are a glorious person this morning. Now when we have a cuppa afterwards, someone might say, how are you feeling? And you might say, oh, I'm not feeling too well, you know, about this. Just reply to them, but you are a glorious person in the eyes of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Oh, I don't need to see the doctor. No, stay away from him. We are glorious because we've been made that way. And then in verse 22, he's still praying. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So that this glory is not something that we've worked up or manufactured or borrowed. The glory has been given to us by the Son. The glory you have given me, says Jesus to the Father, I have given to them and we are one. There is that oneness that we have with the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Spirit. And sometimes people talk about being alone and we can understand that from a purely human point of view. If you focus on that, you will need the doctor. But we are one with the Father. And then verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now there are about 64 sermons in that verse. But notice what he's praying. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Who's that? You and me. Every Christian has been given by the Father. Again, it's the emphasis that there's no guesswork, there's no, well, I don't know whether I'm in or out sort of thing. If you're a Christian, you've been chosen by God that where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, before there was any creation. What a prayer. Do you find it hard to pray, to know what to pray? Well, I do at times. I'm going to pray and I think, oh, what am I going to pray? And you can have a list and you stumble and... The worst thing is to pray in bed and then of course you go to sleep. This is an incredible prayer and if you find it difficult to know what to pray, go through this as your prayer book. 
Go through John 17, for example. Then there's the Psalms that we can use. That's the prayer book and the hymn book of our faith. But to pray through the words of John 17 that Jesus prayed is a way of teaching us. And if you meet someone who's battling in prayer, then refer them to this chapter. This glory. If you've come across the shorter catechism, which is used by Presbyterians, but more than that, the first question in the shorter catechism I should ask you, shouldn't I? What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our primary task? What is the chief thing that we should focus on? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ah, you mean being a Christian is enjoyable? You betcha. To glorify God and to enjoy him. What do you enjoy in life? Some people, all they enjoy is the latest movie or the football results or the increase in pay or the sermon didn't go too long or something or other like that. To glorify God and to enjoy him. Now it's a battle. Every day is the battle of grace because there are all sorts of other things that come in and want our enjoyment, want us to focus on them. But to take those words and see what John is saying in the 17th chapter, to glorify God means to enjoy him. Well, the time had come when God had defeated all Israel's enemies and he's defeated all of ours too. They've all been put out. And we're in the last days towards what is called the telos, which links with the word telescope. They, like us, though, believed that a change of government and a change of circumstances would save them. But the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit announced that their redemption would come in the knowledge that all their sins were forgiven. All this. Do you know that? I mean, we've heard it so often, haven't we? Forgiveness of all of our sins. And every time I think of this, I want to tell a story because I need to be reminded of it. It's the story that's contained in the biography of George Whitfield, the great Methodist preacher. And there were a number of great preachers during that time, the Wesleys, but there was... Hal Harris, the Welshman as well. And in this biography, and they may have met before, but this is the way it's put, George Whitfield meets Hal Harris. And instead of saying, Hello Mr Harris, how are you today? He says to him, Mr Harris, do you know that all your sins are forgiven? That's a conversation stopper. You say that to someone after church, before church, during the week, who are talking about all the issues of life, all the things that are wrong. Oh, we had a bit of rain, but we didn't have much in this heat. Say to them, my friend, do you know that all your sins are forgiven? Huh? 
They might walk away. Well, if they walk away, they walk away. You see, too often we Christians pussyfoot around in the issues. There are people who are interested and open to hear the gospel, perhaps not for too long. I've got a couple of old pagans at the gym I go to and uh, they often ask me to go and have a cup of coffee with them after we've been to the gym. And I've always had something else to do. But last week, one of them came to me again. He said, John, I'd really love it if you'd come and have a cup of coffee with us. And I'm shouting. And I thought, well, how could I let that go? So I met, went with both of them and we sat down. Now, they are pagans. They don't go anywhere near church. They said, oh, we'll have to be careful of our language seeing you're here. I said, don't worry about that. And they started to talk about Christian things. Not a lot of it, just, just a little bit, just a little bit. And I had to be careful that I didn't swamp them. You see, there are people all around us who want to know the answer. And they, they may not go the full way, but little by little we express our faith in Christ for the glory of God. But the Bible very clearly tells us that the person who is not a Christian not only is in darkness, but according to the letter of Ephesians, they are darkness. Look up chapter 5 and verse 8 sometime. The word there is that the unbeliever is darkness. Is darkness. And we have to be convinced of our guilt before we'll run for the remedy of pardon because too many think that they're going all right. And some try to inflate themselves like a a tyre that's gone down. But it doesn't last, they collapse. Well, so much in this story and I'm not going to go through most of the rest of it. But the main text that I had in Acts chapter 3, you'll remember, contained these... This thing keeps closing, closing down. There we are. In Acts chapter 3, of Peter's message, he says in verse 16, And his name, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given that man this perfect health in the presence of you all it is faith in Jesus Christ the pardon, the forgiveness, the cleansing the purpose for life is entirely and only and absolutely in Jesus Christ and he ends his message in verse 26 notice these words that God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to you Israeli people you Jewish people sent him to you first to bless you for what purpose? by turning every one of you from your wickedness and we Gentiles don't miss out on that either to turn us 
from our wickedness. And it is all by grace. All by grace abounding. There is nothing that we can do to impress God, to help him, to assist in any way whatsoever. He comes to us. It is by faith in his name. No other way. Now I suppose the final question is, well, what are you going to do with a message like this? Not the message because I've given it, but the message of God's truth. And you can say, oh well, next week we'll listen to James. That'll be a good change. Yeah. But you see, none of this lets us off the hook. Because this is our moment before the one who is glorious. This is the time that God has brought us to listen to his word so that he can declare to us the truth of what he's now about, the forgiveness of sins, the glory of his name. And my friends, when God's grace comes, it's not meant to just be looked at. It is meant to envelop us to alter us, to work within us and to work through us so that we continue to grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's thank him in prayer. Oh our Father, we pray that you will work in us by your spirit the truth that we've looked at this morning that you, Father, will glorify your Son by your Spirit in our lives in such a way that other people will know that we have been with Jesus. We don't ask that we can admire our Christianity in the mirror. Save us from ever wanting to big note ourselves. Our prayer is that you will change us because you have chosen us and you have delivered us and that you guide us in every area of life. We bless and thank you in the name, the glorious name of our Lord and Saviour Christ. Amen.